In the mid-90s, legendary filmmaker Wes Craven revived the slasher subgenre with Scream. This film was both critically and commercially successful, which in Hollywood means a sequel is inevitable. After the repeat success of Scream 2, it took three years to greenlight the third installment, Scream 3. The box office seemed to hit the mark, however, the reviews did not. What happened? Wes Craven returned. Neff Campbell, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette all returned. Could it have been the writer? Kevin Williamson, the writer of the first two movies, was unable to develop a full script, so they turned to Aaron Kruger. Was this change noticeable? To most, I assume the answer is yes, especially when Kevin Williamson ultimately returned for Scream 4 in 2011. In most rankings for the Scream franchise, you will probably find Scream 3 at the bottom. Do I hate the film? Absolutely not. Did it miss the mark? Well, I guess before I can criticize the direction this film took, I would first have to ask myself, do I think I could have made it better? Hello, and welcome to Adam Does, Da Does the Sequel. Okay, so here we go. I am a huge fan of this franchise. I like all of the movies. I like the style and I like the characters. I also love the meta and self-aware approach. The movies are very fresh. Wes Craven is a great director and I also really like Sidney Prescott as a character and as our main protagonist. The first Scream is my favorite. It's a classic film and I really like most of the characters. My ranking then just kind of goes down for each sequel. I like them all, some more than others obviously, but I do feel the novelty does wear off a little more with each sequel. Regardless, I am a fan. Now for some reason, Scream 3 left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. As much as I do defend it, I can see the shortcomings of the film. It feels like the black sheep of the Scream franchise. It stands out. So where exactly did it go wrong? The script? The new cast of characters? The overuse of comedy? For me, the answer is all the above. So I wanted to start off by quickly reading this uh, for anyone that doesn't know, I, just to give some context. This is from Wikipedia, but I did confirm all the sources named on the page. The environment for Scream 3's development had become more complicated than with previous films. There was an increased scrutiny on the effects of violence in media, and the effect it could have on the public in the aftermath of the Columbine High School Massacre, which occurred shortly before production would begin on the film. In addition, since the release of the original Scream films, various acts of violence had taken place, which had gained media attention when they were linked to or blamed on the films. Eager to avoid further criticism or connection to such incidents, Williamson's notes were largely discarded as the studio insisted that the script should focus on the comedic elements of the series while significantly reducing the violence. It's ironic when you think about it. A movie franchise that is based on and tackles the theme of violence in movies is then affected due to real-life violence in society. I believe this was the biggest factor that affected the overall final product of Scream 3. You can definitely feel the tonal shift, especially now with Scream 4 part of the franchise. Scream 3 almost seems like a detour. Obviously, after the Columbine tragedy, this move made total sense out of respect to those affected. So it's 1999, what would I have done differently? Well, first, I would have halted production and released it in December of 2000, rather than February of 2000. Scream 1 and 2 were both released in December, so it actually makes more sense just from a marketing standpoint. The actual production ultimately started in July of 1999, roughly two months after the events of Columbine. So I think delaying production by 10 months would have been enough time. You know, go to camera in May of 2000, a full year after Columbine, and that will give you enough time to meet your December release date. Delaying the film would have also just 
been even more respectful for what transpired at the time, and in turn, it would have benefited the material. In my opinion, a production involving a serial killer shouldn't have even been made in the spring or summer of 1999. Anyways, that's the big change I would have made. Now as for the story, I like a lot of the elements of Kruger's script, but it definitely has flaws. A lot of the side characters are weak, there's too much comedy and no real tension. The delay would have really helped flesh out the script more and land on a more concrete vision. I know that there were constant rewrites on set and that's never a good sign. So I have broken down what I liked and what I didn't like from the final version. In my treatment, I did keep a fair share of ideas and scenes and moments, so it's not an original idea by me. It's more of a restructure and or reimagining. So I liked the half-brother twist. I liked Maureen's backstory, the, the photos that are released at the crime scenes, Rena Reynolds' history. I loved Randy's video, uh, the famous cotton in Hollywood. I liked that. He has his own talk show. Uh, I like that it's set in Hollywood. I like the Stab 3 trilogy element to the film. I like the soundstage they made uh, to replicate Woodsboro. Uh, Sydney working as a crisis counselor, her in isolation. Uh, I did like that, but I thought they could have you know went further with that. And the things I didn't like, uh, the list is long, so I'll just power through it. Too many annoying and uninteresting uh, side characters, uh, most of them being actors within the movie. Uh, the big three all survive again, Sydney, Gale, and Dewey. I, I didn't like that. Twist comes completely out of nowhere. You need to, to, to build better uh, for the climax. Uh, there's not enough Sydney uh, PTSD, which I mentioned earlier. She would have been fucked from the first two movies. Uh, Dewey and Gale ending up together, I think it was super cheesy. Uh, the lack of blood and gore, no real intensity, the, too much comedy, which I mentioned earlier. You have the Jay and Silent Bob cameo and Carrie Fisher. Uh, just It went too far. I forget Carrie Fisher's name in it, but they make jokes about Star Wars, and it's just it's too much. Uh, Sydney seeing visions of her dead mother was weird. Uh, the cheesy ending with Sydney telling Dewey to shoot him in the head, like it, it's just it's really wacky and, and weird. And Roman faking his death at uh, right somewhere in the third act of the film, I thought was very strange. It just didn't really make any sense. Now I just want to say that you know, so it's out there. I don't think Scream should have had any sequels. I think the first one stands up just fine on its own. All of the sequels basically recycle a lot of the same tropes and it can you know, grow tired. So in this reality where a third installment was going into production, this is how I think it should have gone. Please keep in mind, with every sequel, you have to continue explaining more to have it make some sort of sense. Now, this is a treatment. There may be some plot holes, and I you know, don't flesh out every little detail or nuance. That would come, obviously, with a full script and a handful of rewrites. And I even kept the same names for any side characters that I borrowed to avoid confusion. This is just a vision, a blueprint, if you will, adapted from Aaron Kruger's script. The way I like to look at it is like this. If I had been hired as a co-writer in 1999, these are the suggestions that I would have made Aaron Kruger and Wes Craven based on the climate and the material presented to me. So, this is my Scream 3, set three years after the events of Scream 2. In Los Angeles, a man who we do not know returns home finishing up a phone call with an unidentified person, saying they will see them soon. They eventually get a call on the phone, and it is the killer. He replays the history of the previous two films, including mentioning Sidney Prescott. What starts out as a joke becomes very serious, very similar to the beginning of the first scream. His girlfriend then returns home, and twist, it's Gail Weathers. She gets involved, also talks on the phone with the killer. When Ghostface ultimately attacks, the boyfriend dies first brutally, and while Gale puts up an admirable fight, 
she is ultimately killed by Ghostface. In seclusion somewhere in the U.S., Sidney's dad pulls up to a house with a gate he puts in the code and goes into the house. Sidney Prescott is inside on the phone. She works at a crisis hotline using a different name, Laura. When she finishes her call and joins her dad in the kitchen to put the groceries away, they discuss her isolation, her dad wanting her to seek help, and not offering help to people. She needs the help. They talk about her mom, her secrets. Ultimately, Sydney is too scared to go back in the world, clearly suffering from PTSD. Later that night, she cannot sleep, having nightmares of the past, and she awakes. She goes in the living room and turns on the TV, similar to the first movie. But instead of Gail's broadcast, it is the news of Gail's tragic death. Sydney is shocked. She cannot believe it, and she cries. Back in Los Angeles at the crime scene, cops swarm the apartment as they investigate. We meet lead detective Kincaid. They wonder if this happens to be in relation to the previous killings. They find a photo of an unidentified woman, and they don't know who it is. They find out the last few people Gail had spoken with. One was the director of the three Stab movies. Gail Weathers had a cameo in the third film. They want to get in touch with him and set up a meeting. Back with Sydney, she is drinking heavily. She reflects on moments with Gail and then she thinks what to do. She then looks at a photo of Dewey. She misses him dearly. She goes to start packing. She is going to leave. But she debates it. She even stands outside by her car debating what to do. She then finally leaves her house as her dad watches down the road. He is relieved, but also scared. Kincaid meets with Roman, the director of the three Stab movies, and they question him about the phone call. He wanted to meet with her for drinks. That's all he said happened. After they are done, the producer John Milton arrives to meet with Roman about their next project. After Kincaid leaves, he gets a call, and it is revealed to be a photo of Maureen Prescott. Kincaid isn't surprised, almost as if he knew. They have no idea where Sydney is, but they know someone who may. Cut to Dewey, who is heartbroken, sits at the table alone. He always loved Gail. There's a knock at the door, and it is Sydney. They embrace. The two of them catch up. Dewey had not seen Gail in almost two years after they broke up. He didn't want to leave Woodsboro. She was destined for bigger things. It just was never going to work. He misses her, but he is dating someone. Martha Meeks, Randy's older sister. They have a nice moment together when Martha returns home, and Sydney and she reunite. It has been a long time. Dewey then tells Sydney he got a call from Kincaid in the morning saying they found a photo of her mother and they wanted to know where she was. They debate about going to Hollywood. It's happening again. Sydney realizes it and she needs to do something. They arrive in Los Angeles and at the airport they constantly see advertisements of 100% cotton and it's even on the TV as they walk by. We go to the TV studio where Cotton Weary is taping live. His guest is the director of the Stab trilogy, Roman. And they talk about the three movies. They talk about trilogies and how hard it is to make three good movies. They talk about the passing of Gale and they pay their respects. After the show, Roman goes back to his office where he talks briefly with his assistant, Cody, who does everything Roman says. He is a very loyal assistant. Dewey and Sydney show up to meet with Kincaid and they look at the photo that was found at the crime scene. Sydney does not recognize this woman. She has no idea about her mother's past. She even calls her dad at one point and they're both equally confused. After leaving the police station, they run into Cotton who has showed up for his questioning. It's a little awkward, but ultimately it's nice to see a familiar face. They embrace, they catch up, and decide that they want to go for dinner in the evening. John Milton, the producer of the Stab movies, who we met earlier, gets home after a long day. In his bedroom, an old video is playing with a scene that Sydney's mom is acting in. She was an actress. 
He then gets a call from the killer and he talks to him about the beginning of Milton's career, producing films and destroying young actresses' lives. After a heated exchange, the killer shows up in person and kills John Milton. At dinner, Sydney and Dewey catch up with a fancy cotton as she continues drinking, having trouble dealing with all of this. They reminisce and try to figure out who could be doing this. They have no idea. After dinner is done, Dewey and Sydney get back to their hotel and say goodnight. Sydney continues to drink in her room alone and eventually ends up in the shower as she cries. She has completely fallen apart. Back home in Woodsboro, Martha is packing a bag as she goes to look for some luggage. While looking, she finds a box titled Randy. She goes through Randy's things and during this, she gets very emotional as she thinks about her brother. She then sees some photos of all of them at school and in college, and she eventually finds a tape titled Trilogy Rules. The next morning, the police are at the crime scene of John Milton. Old movies play on the TV and scripts cover the floor. They then find another photo of Sydney's mom, this time with a young John Milton. They think she was an actress. They need to dive deeper into John Milton's history and Maureen Prescott's. At breakfast, Sydney and Dewey dine as Dewey tells Sydney that Martha will be flying out today to be with them. During their meal, a young woman comes up, Angelina, and she played Sydney in the movies. She is really excited, but the real Sydney is not. She cannot understand how a woman has a career based around her trauma. Then Roman comes up, who was meeting with the actress, and he finally gets to meet the real Sydney. They bond over a shared upbringing. Roman had no parents. He never even met them. Angelina tells Roman to take her to the studio to see the sets. Sydney ponders, but then ultimately decides that she wants to go see Woodsboro. Back at the office, Kincaid and the other detectives discover that Sydney's mom had a stage name and a brief Hollywood stint as actress Rena Reynolds. She was a young actress, and John Milton got her started. They need to get Sydney on the phone. Roman takes them to the Stab 3 set, where Sydney and Stu's house remain. She looks at the sets, and she wants to go in and walk around Sydney's house alone. Dewey gets a call, so the other three leave Sydney alone as she goes inside Sydney's house on the set. She is terrorized by Ghostface, who ultimately gets away. The others come back, as well as Kincaid, and this is where they are informed that John Milton is dead. They also inform Sydney about her mother's past. She needs to be alone. She leaves and goes outside. Dewey comes out and supports her as she breaks down. Sydney and Dewey reminisce. They wish Gail were here. They look back on all the events, and this is when Sydney opens up about her drinking problem. She wants everything to go away. Sydney then gets a call from her dad. He is happy that she went there, but he wants her home. She says she can't yet. She needs to find out who is doing this. Inside, Kincaid, Roman, his assistant, and Angelina all talk, and Kincaid warns them to be careful. They have no idea who the killer will be targeting next. They leave, and Kincaid is confused. He has no idea what to make of this. He asks his partner to dig up some co-stars or anyone that might have been around her back in the day in Hollywood. Angelina is back home on the couch, similar to the first scream, and she is watching All the Right Moves, the movie Tatum wanted to rent with Sydney. She gets a call. This scene plays out very similar to the first movie. The killer threatens her, but unlike Sydney, who got away, he ultimately kills Angelina. Back at the hotel, Sydney is in her room alone, and she is watching old movies of her mom. She is watching them intently. She cannot believe it. Dewey comes in with Martha, who has arrived, and she shows them Randy's trilogy tape that he recorded in college before his death. Identical to the real movie, he talks about the rules of a trilogy. Anyone can die in the final act, and most importantly, forget everything you know about the past. And then Randy ends the tape by saying goodbye and good luck. Sydney, Dewey, and Martha arrive at the police station as Cotton is leaving. 
Cotton told Kincaid that when he was with Maureen, she never said any of this. He is as shocked as everyone else. He tells Sydney that if she needs anything, just let him know. Sydney, Dewey, and Martha also find out about Angelina's death, and they see the new photo. Sydney's mom with an unidentified actor. Kincaid says they are bringing him in. He'll be here shortly. The older actor finally arrives. His name is Richard, and he opens up to everyone, claiming that he did sleep with Rena Reynolds. He said there was a lot of sleeping around with young actresses in the 70s. He also says that she got pregnant but had an abortion, and he never saw her again after that. Everyone is in shock. They cannot believe it. After all of this, everyone leaves, and Sydney, Dewey, and Martha stay behind. Kincaid is not sure how much more help they can be. They cannot connect the dots. It's at this time they get a call from the killer, and he wants to speak with Sydney. She answers and finally speaks with the killer. Sydney loses it on him, and he says he cannot wait to meet her. Again. Also alluding that there is one more target before her, and says don't leave town. The killer then hangs up. Everybody is stunned. Cotton exercises at home. After he's done, he gets a call from the killer. The killer talks to him about being framed by Billy and Stu, and he also talks to him about Maureen Prescott. The killer shows himself, and they have a back-and-forth fight that is very aggressive. Right when you think Cotton has the upper hand, another ghost face appears out of nowhere and stabs him. Cotton lays on the ground as they both stand above Cotton. One of the killers then finishes him off by stabbing him in the head. Kincaid and Sydney are getting a drink and he asks her how she deals with all of this and she is trying to figure it out. Kincaid opens up about his nightmares that he has had. His life is a complete mess. She says this is the freest she has been in a long time, yet there is another killer after her. She tells him she came here for Gale and Dewey. She's terrified. She wants to go back to not looking over her shoulder. She wants to go grocery shopping and she wants to trust a man. He believes that she will get there and she will get her strength back. Kincaid then opens up about his dark past and explains why he does what he does. Kincaid then gets a call from his partner. Cotton is dead. Dewey and Martha arrive back at the hotel and Dewey cannot find his key and he asks for Martha's and they open up and when they get inside they are attacked by Ghostface. Martha gets knocked out early and Dewey puts up a fight but Ghostface ultimately gets the upper hand. Sydney and Kincaid arrive at Cotton's house. Before getting out of the car, Sydney notices that Kincaid has a spare gun in his glove compartment. They go inside and on the wall it reads, Home Wrecker in Blood. Sydney breaks down yet again. She cannot believe Cotton has been killed. She goes outside for some air and she gets a phone call from Martha's phone. It is the killer. He says he has both of them and tells her to come to Stu's house for the final act and to not tell the police or they will both be killed. Sydney ponders what to do before asking Kincaid for his keys. She left something in the car. Cindy goes outside and she gets into Kincaid's car. She thinks about it briefly. And then she grabs the gun out of the glove compartment, and she drives off. After the car is gone, Kincaid runs outside. He knows she got a call. Sydney arrives at the studio, and she goes to the soundstage and walks into Stu's house, where she finds Dewey and Martha tied up upstairs. She starts to help them, but then she gets attacked once again by the killer. They fight briefly before falling down the stairs. Sydney gets the upper hand, and the fight continues, and while she's on the ground, the killer runs at her, and she shoots him. At this time, a projector is turned onto the wall. Old footage starts playing of Maureen with Billy's father and Cotton. Sydney's confused. She doesn't know what's going on. 
This is when the second and real Ghostface shows up, Roman. This climax is almost identical to the actual one. Roman reveals himself as the killer and her half-brother. He has been behind this whole thing since the beginning. He teamed up with Billy and Stu, made them frame Cotton and kill Marine, and then they went off on their own a year later, starting the events of the first movie. After which, Roman started a directing career in Hollywood. Just like in the real Scream 3, Roman says, I searched for a mother too, an actress named Rena Reynolds. Tried to find her my whole life. And four years ago, I actually tracked her down. Knocked at her door, thinking she'd welcome me with open arms, but she had a new life and a new name, Maureen Prescott. You were the only child she claimed, Sydney. She shut me out into the cold forever. Her own son. Roman Bridger, director and brother. She slammed the door in my face, Sid. She said that I was Rena's child and Rena was dead. And that's when it struck me. What a good idea. So I watched her. I made a little movie, a little family film. Seems Maureen, mom, she really got around. I mean, Cotton was one thing, everybody knew about that. But Billy's father, that was the key. Your boyfriend didn't like seeing his daddy in my film too much. He didn't like it at all. And once I supplied the motivation, all the kid needed was a few pointers. Have a partner to sell out in case you get caught, find someone to frame. It's like he was making a movie. I had no idea that they were going to make a film of their own. And what a film it turned out to be. I mean, introducing Sydney the victim. Sydney the survivor. Sydney the star. You're going to pay for the life you stole from me, Sid. For the mother. And for the family. And for the stardom. And for goddammit everything you had that should have been mine. Sydney asks Roman who the other killer is. And Roman says that it's his assistant. He helped out whenever he was needed. And everything will be traced back to him. They confront each other, scream, yell. Roman is jealous of the life she has and the lack of one he does not have. The two of them fight. While the fight occurs, Kincaid shows up. He intervenes and saves Sydney, but then he fights Roman and Roman almost kills Kincaid. This is when Sydney steps up and saves Kincaid. She eventually shoots Roman. Sydney goes up to Roman, grabs the knife away from him, and kneels down beside him. Roman says that all he wanted was a mother and a family. Sydney understands, she sympathizes, and she takes his hand as he dies. Cindy then stands up beside Kincaid and without looking, she shoots Roman again in the head. Kincaid is shocked and Cindy says, trust me, and walks away. She goes upstairs and unties Dewey and Martha and they embrace. Then all of them walk out of the set house as the police arrive. Cindy stops and looks back at the house, where it all began for her. She takes a deep breath. She's relieved. At the airport, Martha says her goodbye to Sydney and then walks away, telling Dewey that she'll wait for him. Dewey and Sydney have their final moments together, and Dewey asks where she's going. Sydney doesn't know. She just can't go back to Woodsboro. They hug, and Dewey leaves. Sydney is left alone, watching them walk off. She notices a young mother and daughter walking, holding hands. Sydney reminisces on her life and her mother. She carries on through the airport. Sometime later, Sydney, sporting a new style of hair, longer, similar to Scream 1, is sitting down with a psychiatrist talking to her about her past. It goes well. She says she is feeling better. She is asked about her mother and Sydney says that she's made peace. It then goes to Sydney kneeling down beside her mother's grave. She forgives her and tells her that she loves her. She leaves and she is embraced by her father and then a handsome man, her boyfriend. A montage begins with Sydney and her boyfriend. They drive, they laugh, they grocery shop together. They then get home and put everything away. We see a photo of Gail and a photo of Dewey with Martha, who is clearly pregnant. Sydney then sits on the couch and starts channel surfing as her boyfriend comes in with a bowl of popcorn. They cuddle while clearly a movie starts. The final shot ends on the phone as it starts to ring. Sydney answers, very reminiscent of Casey answering in the first film. 
She says hello. Cut to black. Thank you very much to everyone who has tuned in. I hope you all enjoyed my alternate reality version of Scream 3. If you haven't seen any movies in this franchise, I highly recommend checking them out. They're a lot of fun. And I'm very curious to see where the story goes in Scream 5. That should be released soon. And to wrap this up, I would like everyone to do me a favor. Please sit down, relax, and think really hard and answer this question. What's your favorite scary movie? Hey there, remember that you can follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and many other options. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram as The Viewer Scott. Bye bye!